gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, I am talking to you from the tenth floor of the Pendry Hotel in Hudson Hudson Yards, New York. Um, I am overlooking a fairly uh, grim, but still cool view. There's something about out, as long as you have height, everything looks kind of cool. Um, of the, I, you can't call it the lower west side of Manhattan, but it's the west side of Manhattan near the Lincoln Tunnel. And uh, I can, I'm right above one of the access roads out of the Lincoln Tunnel, which is ironic given that my mom had a house on the other side of the river where, with the equivalent road leading away from Tunnel. None of this is particularly interesting. I am just trying to warm up a little bit. It's early. Um, I did CNN last night from here. Um, um, and uh, actually, I did two shows. And um, I, I maybe I'll, yeah, I'll, but I, I, I kind of, I, I wouldn't say I lost my temper, but I got a little um, heated on one of them, weirdly enough. Um, we can talk about that in a little bit. Uh, where to actually begin, though? Um, I kind of feel like everyone is kind of sick of hearing about the indictment stuff with Trump. And if you um, aren't, you should really listen to the latest episode of Advisory Opinions um, or the latest episode of the Dispatch podcast where we get into it um, with some specificity on both. I think I've had my say on a lot of this stuff. I wrote my LA Times column about this. I just think that the... Um, the legalification of all of this um, bothers me. Um, I'm I'm more persuaded than I was at the beginning of the week of some of Sarah's complaints about how how outraged we should be about the Mel about the Al I keep want to say Melvin Bragg. Was there a Melvin Bragg somewhere? Um, Alvin Bragg. Um, you know, she thinks we should be much more outraged about what Bragg is doing because it is essentially lawless than we should be about Trump's behavior or what the Republicans are doing to defend him and all that. I'm a little bit more persuaded, but um, not as persuaded as she would like. She keeps talking about how this should be like the Thomas More Richard Roper speech in A Man for All Seasons, which I actually have written about a bunch of times in the G file and in my column. Um, I love that scene. I think it's wonderful. This is the scene where Roper accuses, you know, uh, Thomas More of wanting to give the wanting to give uh, the devil, the benefit of the law, and Moore has this great thing about it. He says, absolutely I do, because you would want to clear the entire nation of uh, forests of law. I mean, it's a good metaphor, but I can't remember exactly how he does it. Um, falling all the trees of law, um, leaving this country bare. And then he says, what would you do when the devil wheels round on you and you have no place to hide um, behind the law because you've cut it all down? I get the point. I get the point a lot because, again, I've brought it up a bunch of times. Um, I don't think um, I agree entirely with Sarah. I don't think the stakes are the same in part because I don't think Trump is the devil. 
um, and nor do I think we're cutting down all of the laws to get Trump, and I say we advisedly because I have no say in any of this whatsoever, but it's prompted a, a ongoing thing between Sarah and I, um, who I love to argue with, and I respect her a lot, um, don't tell her that, where she she thinks letting the Nazis march in Skokie was the one of the greatest moments in American history. It makes her proud to be an American and all that. And I get the argument, and I, I don't think there is, I'm not saying there's no merit to it, but I'm a, you've probably been okay, probably shouldn't have let the Nazis march in Skokie guy, um, and have been for a very long time. And so Sarah and I are going to do either a special uh, paywalled um, uh, podcast for the dispatch where we debate the Skokie Nazi thing, or maybe we'll do a special remnant. I haven't decided, or we haven't decided which, um, but that should be fun. Um, so anyway, I, I, I got nothing more. I mean, I, I, I think the only thing I haven't really talked about, which I think is freaking... Um, more hilarious than disturbing. I mean, look, I, I think Trump's um, his playing footsie with violence now is not deniable. Um, I thought it was an overread of his original first tweet about the protest, protest, protest thing, um, but only marginally so. But I, I didn't think he could say, okay, he wants violence because he wants people to protest. Um, but now like overnight, I guess he tweeted, I shouldn't say tweeted, um, posted on truth social on his post truth social media platform that arresting him would lead to death and destruction or charging him would lead to death and destruction. Now that's, that's just a threat, right? He posted a picture of him wielding a baseball bat, sort of like Robert De Niro in the untouchables next to a picture of Bragg. Um, that's a threat. Right. That's violence. And I don't I don't think he has the capacity to raise the kind of mob violence he did on January 6th. But uh, this is another well, there's another one of those examples of the difference between necessary and sufficient. Um, all it takes is arousing a couple people or even one person to do terrible things. And you have some moral culpability, even if you don't violate the standard of Times v. Sullivan. Um, again, this is my problem where. We seem to think you can do evil things, but so long as you um, don't cross over the very wide safeguards of the law, um, you cannot be held accountable for it in terms of politics. I think it's just an incredibly pernicious um, development in, a, in, in, in American life. Um, this idea that if something is not against the law, no one has a right to judge it or condemn it or to punish people or hold people accountable or give make people face consequences for it. Uh, most of the things you punished your kids for, if you have kids, um, were not illegal. Um, that doesn't mean you were wrong to punish your kids. Most of the time you've had to discipline somebody who works for you. Um, um, it wasn't because they did something illegal. Uh, you're allowed to, but somehow we think because politicians work in politics and work for the government, the thing that applies to them are legal structure, strictures um, rather than moral and philosophical and common sense strictures, and which is particularly weird since the whole point of elections is to fire people not for illegal behavior, but just for making bad decisions um, or just wanting fresh blood. And yet um, people lose sight of that all the time. And uh, that's, that's what I've been trying to get at 
all week with this this point about how you know whether it's a misdemeanor or whether it's a um, it can be sort of bootstrapped into a felony misses the fact misses the point that all of this behavior all of this um, stuff that Trump does and elicits from friends and foe alike. You know, he brings out the worst versions of a lot of people. Um, some people say he brings out the worst version of me and they have jump derangement syndrome and yada, yada, yada. Fine. Okay. Whatever. Um, it's still the fact that he's distortive and um, and destructive. I mean, this is the one thing that Tucker Carlson clearly got right is that Trump is a destroyer. I mean, he says that in those texts. Um, and, he, you know, he opted to play footsie with that and encourage it rather than do something about it. Um, that's his choice. But uh, Tucker was right in the observation. And you just look at you know, you look, Trump's own lawyer is being dragged in to testify um, because three judges ruled that that the crime fraud exception in this case um, Pierce's attorney-client privilege. I mean, Trump just routinely ruins people's careers and reputations. And he also elevates the worst people to have much more prominent roles in American life, um, you know, than they should. And, um, uh, and you shouldn't have to get into an argument about criminal law to say enough already with this guy. You know, I keep thinking back about you know, my, my, you know, I've had friends who had drug problems. I had a brother who had a drug problem. And there's this point that I think a lot of people understand with relatives who are alcoholics, relatives who have other addiction issues, um, uh, relatives or friends who have, you know, just simple, uh, really chronic bad judgment or impulse control issues. Um, but who may be really good people and you love them, right? Um, and may be well-intentioned. Sort of like, uh, you know, what's his name? The the Tom Hulse character in Parenthood always, I felt very poignant because of his relationship with his dad, uh, played by Jason Robards. And I think it's Tom Hulse. He's the guy who played uh, Mozart in that Amadeus movie. Um, and he's always just got a, a grift, a con, a scheme, a get-rich-quick idea um, that exhausts his dad and, um, and he's got a gambling issue and a uh, gambling addiction. And anyway, you know, these people in your life, um, if you don't have one of these people in life, maybe you're the kind of person I'm talking about. Um, uh, but at least at one degree of separation, I think most people know these kinds of people, Hunter Biden, perfect example, right? There are these flawed people who you love well, you know there's a better person in there. But at some point, you're just like, it's always something with this guy. Now, with loved ones, with kids, you, you, it's really hard to sort of say, and therefore I'm cutting you off or I'm, I'm done with you. But with employees, it's much easier, right? It's, it's hard with friends. I've had it happen with friends where you just be like, you know, look, I get it. You have this excuse about how you were mugged and that's why you couldn't help me move or whatever. Um, but it's always something with you. And I can't tell when you're telling the truth and I can't tell when you're lying or a little bit of the truth or whatever. And so at some point you just got to sort of cut bait. And that's my hope is that even among a significant portion of the people who love Trump, they just get that feeling of, man, there's just always something with this guy. There's always something that just... 
um, makes life harder for everybody else. That was the lesson of the 2022 midterms. Uh, that was the lesson of the last couple of years of his presidency at the minimum. Um, that's the lesson of how of his role in the Republican Party today. And you can be like the overprotective mom who thinks, uh, you know, it's really not his fault. He's a good boy. And, you know, it's, it's society or whoever or the, the media that's given him a bad rap and all that kind of stuff. But um, Donald Trump is not your relative. And you don't owe him that kind of latitude. He's just a dude who thinks very little of you. Right, particularly if you're ever critical of him, thinks very little of this country. Um, the moment it doesn't love him, or doesn't do what he wants, or doesn't make him the center of attention, so you just don't owe him um, this much loyalty, this much leeway. And I think that this this Alvin Bragg stuff, not to mention the stuff coming down the pike. My hope is is that for a lot of you know people who I know, you know, look, I mean. The people who are the biggest MAGA people on Twitter tend to be jerks um, because that's the performative incentive structure that Trump has created. Um, but I just know, look, I, I have enough relatives and friends and people I've met and people I've talked to and um, and I hear from who are not horrible people just because they like Donald Trump and don't see him the way I do. It bothers me that they don't see him something along the ways I do. It bothers me that they don't see what a con man and buffoon he is, but doesn't make them bad people. And and I, what I'm hoping is, is that enough of them go through all this, see all this, see this exhortation to violence or this winking and nodding at violence and say, you know, it's just too much muchness. Oh, that reminds me, um, <laughs> uh, not last night, but two nights ago, I was on CNN, and, I, and this is a straight-up ethical dilemma that I, I, I just I couldn't sort out on air live. I was I was doing a TV hit, uh, the Aaron Burnett show. Um, it's called Out Front, the seven o'clock hour on CNN, and I was talking about some of this stuff, and I was talking about how you know Trump brings out the worst in people, and um, you know, and that the brag. Indictment, if it is as reported, is a perfect sign about how Trump's violation of norms invites violation of norms by others. And um, and I said, so it's sort of a symptom of this broader era that we live in of tit for tat, eye for an eye, politics as the crow flies. And um, Aaron is very nice, was like, that's just such a wonderful phrase. I'm going to steal that. I'll give you credit. But politics as the crow flies. And you know, we were out of time and all this kind of stuff. And I just kind of sweated. Do I tell her that this is the title of a very famous essay from the British philosopher, Michael Oakshot, and I didn't coin it? Or do do I let her just give me credit for coining the phrase politics of the glorifies? And I didn't, I didn't correct her. I just want to be clear. I haven't heard from anybody. I was sure there'd be at least one Oakshotian in the audience. And you'd be like, hey, wait a second. But I haven't heard from them if there was. And then at the end, I made another point about how there was too much muchness to um, Trump, and and again, she said, oh, another great phrase, and I was like, ah, I didn't do it again, because uh, that's actually a Britishism, it's not my phrase, but I, I feel bad about it, because um, um, I don't like taking credit for other people's, or whatever, you know what I mean, so, oh, sorry, since I'm talking about CNN, 
Uh, so, yeah, so last night I was on Anderson Cooper's show with Van Jones in the 8 o'clock hour. And if you had told me not too long ago I'd be chumming it up with Van Jones on TV, I would have been skeptical. Um, that all went fine. And then um, in the 10 o'clock hour, I did this uh, other show Al- Alison Camerato was hosting. And it was funny. We all were basically fine talking about our different points of view on... Uh, Trump and on this really terrible case about this Colorado couple who are being charged with some degree of manslaughter for their role in their son's uh, killing spree in his high school. And we can talk about that in a second, I guess, since I brought it up. Um, But then there was supposed to be this this sort of light moment about how a West Texas A&M, the president of West Texas A&M canceled or banned a a drag show for charity, right? I think some fraternity or something. And everyone was just having so much fun talking about what an idiot the president of the school was. And look, his statement was a, was a bit of a stretch. He compared it to blackface. He, he said, you know, drag shows are, you know, full of misogyny and blah, 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 blah. And he would never allow um, a drag show on his campus any more than he would la- allow a blackface show. And everyone just, was just dunking on this from great height and talking about how stupid this was and, ooh, the dumb guy read an article and he didn't understand it and now he's saying something stupid. And, you know, I just felt like, you know, what is my role here other than to be the skunk at the guarding party on this? And so uh, as best I could, you know, everything went kind of fast. It's, t- it's live TV, but um, I made the point that, look, I wouldn't compare it to blackface, although the blackface thing, you know, look, Rob Long had made this point in commentary. I think I made this point in a G file at some point. Um, you know, the blackface thing, I think, is fraught, and I wouldn't have brought it up in that context. But it is not as uh, just sort of, oh, look at these idiots; they don't even know what blackface is. Kind of um, stupid as 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 some of the liberals on the panel were making it out to seem. You know, you think about, it, remember Rachel Dolezal? She's the white woman who identified as black and darkened her skin um, and kinked her hair to make it look like it was African-American hair. And uh, she was vilified for it. You know, she was even the head of, the, I think, the either the Oregon State NAACP or at least a chapter in Oregon, maybe like the Portland NAACP. I think the people who just instantaneously think that the blackface thing is just on its face stupid should think about why it is that identifying as black is just simply taboo and impermissible in our culture as a matter of identity politics. But identifying as a woman um, is or a man isn't. I totally agree. They're different things. And it's fine to say, well, they're different things. But do you know why they're different things? Can you explain it in a rational, coherent way that is consistent? Um, and I don't think a lot of people can. And so anyway, I don't think I didn't bring I didn't get into that. But anyway, I said, you know, look, the blackface comparison, I, I wouldn't do. I probably wouldn't ban it. You know, it's for some charity and it's a fraternity and let them do what they want to do. But at the same time, I have no problem with presidents of universities. I don't know if West Texas A&M is, I assume it's it's a public university, but I was, I was like, because A&M, but I don't know. And I was like, I, I have no problem with private, the heads of private universities setting standards 
for campuses that they're in charge of. And, um, and I have no problem with it with public universities. It's just I understand that there are sort of different rules applied to public universities and private universities in terms of First Amendment protections and all the rest. And then I made this point that annoys a lot of people. And again, I, I think I probably did it too starkly where I made this point that, you know, look, I think it's very weird in our culture, and I see this on Twitter all the time, that you have to love, you know, it's sort of like, um, you know, you will be made to care, right? It's sort of like, you know, you have to wear the ribbon. Um, you have to love and celebrate drag shows um, in all their forms if you want to be on the right side of the transgender issue. And I mean, I use the right side advisedly on the progressive side of the transgender issue. And I, it just bugs me. I just don't like it, right? I mean, I don't, I, I think drag shows for kids are just, particularly little kids, are just inappropriate. And certainly the, um, the worst case examples that I've seen are really, really inappropriate. And they would be inappropriate if they weren't drag queens, but actual women dancing and behaving the way they are. But this guy, uh, Jay Michelson, he made the point that, you know, most drag shows aren't simulated strip shows. They're more like, you know, glamming things. And I guess that's true. Um, and that's fine. The only drag shows I've been to were more like that, I guess. So like I say shows, show. At the same time, I I don't have to celebrate it, right? Um, and I don't have to think it's cool. And I think it's, a, my point was, I think it's very weird. Like if I had said in the 1990s or early 2000s, you, if you don't like gay strip shows, then you're really not supportive of homosexuals in America. The gay people I knew would have, would have, you know, torn me apart. You know, this idea that this, first of all, drag shows and the transgender issue, you know, they've been conflated, but, you know, drag shows have a different cultural valence in America um, and in Western and in history than uh, the sort of broader issues of transgenderism. But regardless, uh, this idea that if you don't celebrate this flamboyant kind of performance thing, um, then you're not for equal rights and all these other things. I just don't buy it. Um, and that that made some people uncomfortable. Um, but more broadly, I just was like, look, I, like, uh, I, might, I might have reached different conclusions than this university president, but I have no problem with presidents of universities imposing standards um, or upholding standards for their institutions. And this, uh, <laughs> this other guy I was with, I could not believe, I mean, he was a very nice guy, some lawyer, I never met him before, named Joey Jackson, who goes on this, he's, he's, he's a funny guy because almost everything he does is sort of, he sounds like he's giving either a press conference for his client or summarizing something in front of a jury. And um, I felt a little guilty, guiltier than usual, interrupting him a couple times because he gets into this sort of musical kind of cadence about how he's making it, building up to his point and all that. Um, but I think a lot of it is just, I don't want to say it's BS, but it's just, I just, it's, I, I, at one point I said, I thought what he was saying was ridiculous. He basically was making this full-throated argument that, college is a laboratory of learning. That's his line. It's a laboratory of learning and it's a place to be expressive and you need to be able to express yourself. And who is the president of a university to tell students what to do in a laboratory of learning? And he goes on about this over, you know, it seemed like forever. Um, maybe it's just because I find the whole thing so 
I reject the thing so much that it seemed longer than it was, but um, about this, you know, it's a place for expression. It's a place to discover who you are and, and protest and yada, yada, yada. And, and who, who has any right to judge or determine how other people should, you know, express themselves. And I was just like, I don't know, the president of a university, that's sort of his job. Um, you know, like, I don't think students should be able to tell um, professors what's going to be on the curriculum or the syllabi. They don't get to vote on that. And he's like, they do get to vote. They vote with their spirit. And it was just like, oh, my God. You know, and he keeps doing this. Who is this person to say what the right way to do things is? And, I, and then, like, who appointed him? I was like, I don't know. The trustees of the university, they hired the guy. Now, you can fire him. If he makes a really bad decision, um, but uh, you know, institutions are supposed to make decisions about what members of that institution can can't do. You know, again, we're talking about um, norms and customs and rules more than we're talking about laws. But still, you know, that's you know, this is my I, I didn't get into a whole Yuval Levin thing, but you, you you know this argument is that institutions are supposed to shape character, and they're supposed to bend people to the needs and the missions of the institution. And uh, his sort of approach was, no, they're all Rousseauian noble savages who get to sort of define themselves as they go, and nobody has any authority over them. And I just think that's that's madness and bizarre madness. And I know it sounds good to a lot of people, but that's one of the problems with our culture is how good it sounds to people. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit TNUSA.com slash remnant. That's TNUSA.com slash remnant. To get off of this for the time being, like the McKay Coppins, I think, no, I'm sorry, not McKay Coppins. Now I can't remember what his name is, but the guy from the Washington Post um, kind of looks like McKay Coppins. Um, uh, he was tweeting yesterday about what a huge generational divide it is over TikTok. And you're having a lot of old people decide what young people can do. And I saw this a bunch of places yesterday because of the TikTok hearings. I, you know, I responded, you know, first of all, the Constitution kind of makes that inevitable because I don't think you can be a Congress member until you're what, 25? Can't be a senator until you're 30 or 35? I can't remember. But regardless, there are age restrictions on being one of these decision makers. There are formal ones. There's also like civilizational ones is that, you know, you get more authority and experience as you get older to make decisions for people who lack authority and experience. The idea that somehow, which was all over the place on Twitter 
and on cable news last night or yesterday that young people will be mad at something and therefore the olds shouldn't do it was everywhere. Look, I, I get I get the point. It's, as an analytical thing, it's, it's objectively true. It's an observable fact. But that's also just how, like, civilization works. You know, and the idea that the problem with America, which is the least um, sort of deferential as a cultural matter to old people of probably any advanced <laughs> country in the world, um, or at least is up there, uh, that somehow our problem is we don't listen to the young people enough, I just think is bizarre and stupid. I mean, I really do. And yeah, I do realize it's a little awkward right now um, that both parties are dominated by really, really old people. But that's not my preference. I would be perfectly happy to swap out, not necessarily sort of Logan's Run style, but I would be perfectly happy to swap out the entire last qu highest quintile of old people um, with the next quintile uh, tomorrow. You know, my, first of all, I think, you know, aging the baby boomers out of government service would be good for everybody. But I don't think aging in the zennials or zennials or whatever the youngest, co you know, the 18 to 25 year olds, I don't think that they should be put in charge either. But like this, I mean, I, I know I'm a broken record on this. I've written so much about it. But the deification of youth in our culture, particularly on the progressive left, but um, it's got its own version on the right. It's just not as strong. It's getting stronger. You know, the number of people who think like Turning Point USA is a really valuable and important um, driver of American politics seems to grow by the day and grows stronger by the day. But it's really among, on the left, there has always been this notion that somehow if you could just take the passion of young people and uh, have, uh, have it override American Politics, everything would be awesome. I gave me a lot of hay back in the day that wasn't intended to rhyme about Hillary Clinton's line in um, It Takes a Village where she says, some of the wisest theologians I've ever met have been five-year-olds. No, they haven't. <laughs> um, you know, this is just, it's just gobbledygook garbage. And look, I, I get it. The whole book was, what, what did PJ say about it? It was like, it was like, written from the national from the pages of the tales of Hallmark Cardia or something like that. I get, you know, I, I get the point, you know, kids have this certain kind of visitor from Mars seeing the world fresh point of view. But this idea that somehow kids, that young people are inherently wiser um, than old people is so ridiculous. And I want to be clear, I was an old young person. Like I, I, I was making this point when I was a Gen Xer, when, when leaning into your Gen X stuff um, was uh, leaning into your youth was a great way to skip a lot of uh, hurdles uh, in getting jobs from baby boomers. Because one of the great things that baby, one of the great uh, examples of damage that baby boomers have done to the United States of America is their wild emphasis, uh, nostalgia-driven emphasis on the glory and wonders of youth politics. So anyway, that gets me back to this this CNN thing. There's this idea that this 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 um, this guy uh, uh, Joey Jackson was making that colleges is, is supposed to be this place 
where you let your freak flag fly, right? And that's how you sort of, you know, it's, it's, it's supposed to be a place where you discover yourself and all that. And I get it. Look, I discovered a lot about myself in college. I'm, I'm not poo-pooing that entirely. But this gets at my sort of longstanding. I was talking about this the other day on the, on the AMA remnant. Administrators at elite universities in particular, but not just elite universities, have made this, I think, disastrous assumption that a key part of the college experience, the thing that makes college college, is protesting. They've institutionalized this idea of radical rejection of the powers that be, of standing. You know, it's funny, William F. Buckley gets all this grief for saying standing athwart history, yelling stop, when in fact that is like the core insight of uh, huge swaths of the radical progressive left, particularly when it comes to climate change stuff. I mean, what is Greta, Greta Thunberg yelling, if not stop, you know, stop to fossil fuels, stop to economic growth? I believe she's saying stop to wind farms, too. I mean, she's a classic radical in the sense that radicalism means tearing things down to the roots. Um, uh, the whole stop the world before, stop the world I want to get off thing is much more um, I shouldn't say it's much more a thing of the left. I think it's a part of the problem. Um, I think it's a, there's, there's a problem on the right, too, with this kind of thinking. But it's not what Buckley was talking about. Buckley was talking about a specific sort of direction of politics and public philosophy that he wanted to stand athwart and yell stop at. Um, these people want to, a lot of these people want to yell stop at the warp and woof of Western civilization. So anyway, my, my point is getting back to, to this radicalism thing, you have it sort of written into the DNA of these universities that walkouts, protests, uh, let's all sign a petition, um, you know, let's, let's boo um, visiting speakers, that this is what college is all about. And if you didn't have this kind of experience in college, you didn't have the full college experience. And again, I think it is in part a legacy of the baby boomers who have, you know, whose nostalgia has warped and whipped, uh, warped um, every institution in America. Um, I'm not saying every baby boomer, but I'm talking about the elite baby boomers who control, who did the long march through the institutions, Gramsci style, um, in the 60s. They have left their indelible mark on the culture and character of these institutions. And it just sort of takes for granted that you're supposed to be um, raising rebels. And you've heard me talk a million times around here about how the sort of inherent contradiction of this whole thing is that the psychology that they're infecting these kids with um, is actually radical conformity, but uh, the, the pill goes down with this coding that tells them that they're all rebels. And I think it's a terrible approach to education. I think, you know, we would be a much better country if we had a lot less of that and a lot more of, I don't know, like, you know, 19th century British education where everybody was taught to sit in rows and memorize things and be able to explain what they memorized um, than, you know, this riot of self-expression stuff. So again, I, I don't know that the president of West Texas A&M made the right decision about this drag show. I hadn't really heard about the story till I went on TV yesterday, but... I have no problem with the heads of institutions 
making decisions about the nature of their institution and what is going to be permissible or not permissible there. And it's funny, I got into this argument with this uh, other guy. He seems like a very nice guy. I mean, he's a rabbi and writes, I guess, for the Daily Beast. Uh, Jay Michelson um, liked him. I mean, I sincerely liked him. I think he's very smart. Uh, made plenty of fine points. But he accused me of being part of cancel culture and then endorsing cancel culture. And, like, I don't necessarily know what he means by cancel culture. But if you define cancel culture as the ability of the stewards of institutions who are making, who are responsible for making meaningful decisions about the direction and nature of those institutions, having the power and the authority to do so and to be held accountable for bad decisions. Yeah, okay, if that's the definition of cancel culture, I'm for cancel culture. But, um, you know, you're not really supposed to talk about what you talk about during commercial breaks and stuff. So I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll make my point rhetorically. Um, uh, the consensus was on the panel that the blackface comparison was terrible and stupid. I am perfectly fine with, for the sake of argument, conceding that point here, and I'm probably fine with conceding the substance of it, whatever. So let's just stipulate it. But I would ask people who, you know, um, think it's outrageous for a school to cancel a drag show, would you think it's outrageous for a school to cancel um, a minstrel show with blackface? And my assumption is the answer is no, you'd think it's fine. So, and that's fine. Like, I, if I were the president of university, I wouldn't allow, I would say you can't do that either. Um, um, that doesn't mean I'm in favor of cancel culture. That means uh, I have some minimal standard about the kind of character that we're going to inculcate around here. And that, you know, again, I, I brought, talked about this on the solo remnant, but like the Stanford thing, I just think is a perfect example of this where, you know, the philosophy that says you should be able to just sort of express yourself without consequence, um, express yourself through improper channels and at improper times and improper ways without consequence is the kind of philosophy that gets you things like the disaster at Stanford. And, um, and again, like I, and, and it's particularly bad because this is Stanford law school, right? Which is, um, fundamentally a vocational school. It is teaching people how to do a specific job. And if the reports are accurate, I have yet to see any pushback on it, the reports are accurate that students in the hallway shouted or whispered or hissed obscenities at a sitting federal judge, including, I hope your daughters get raped. They should be expelled. And if not expelled, certainly suspended, right? But they, they shouldn't be celebrated. They shouldn't be like, oh, you spoke truth to power. No, you behaved like an idiot. Tell me, you know, I, you know, I got listeners all over the place. I got listeners, you know, who work on Capitol Hill. I got listeners who work in corporate America, at, work in law firms that are stay-at-home, you know, parents. I got um, listeners in every walk of life. I got student listeners. Fine. What walk of life do you live in where if somebody said that, if some trainee said that to a visiting dignitary, would there be no repercussions for it? Really? Are you, you're the assistant manager at Jiffy Loop, And uh, one of the trainees says to a client, client who comes in, I hope your, your daughters get raped. You'd be okay with that? You'd be okay with that in the faculty lounge? You'd be okay with that um, in your law firm, at your bank, at your church? 
It is just, it has nothing to do with free speech stuff to me. It has to do with, you know, knowing what proper behavior is and what the, what the proper functioning of an institution is. It's, as Yuval always says, the first question you should ask in any institution is, what is my role here? And um, teaching kids who have to become presumably a large number of them officers of either. If you're going to law school, you know, the handful of you who aren't going to be script writers, um, you're either going to be a lawyer, which means you're going to be an officer of the court, where you're going to have to deal with opposing counsel or your own clients who you might think are terrible people. And talking like that is just a non-starter. Never mind talking to a judge in court like that. You'll go to jail um, for contempt. And if you're not going to become a, a lawyer of some kind, um, you're going to become a law professor of some kind. And teaching kids that they that, that kind of behavior is tolerable and acceptable or, or laudatory is outrageous as well. And so, like, this is, this is the kind of thing you... Um, reap when you sow this idea that there should be no constraints and no authority has any right to tell you how to conduct yourself, including in the institution that that authority is in charge of. Now, at the same time, I'm wildly in favor of free speech on college campuses and other places, but free speech rightly understood. Um, free speech, you know, for free inquiry, free speech for um, political protest, free speech for freedom of conscience and freedom of religion. All of these things are fine. Not even fine. They're glorious and need to be protected. But, um, um, but you know, these schools have honor codes, most of them, or they're supposed to. And they're supposed to, people are supposed to have good manners and live with decorum. And um, you can ask anything you want in a Q&A. You can ask anything you want um, through the right channels and whatnot. But uh, being a jackass for its own sake does not seem to me to be um, something that we should, we should celebrate. Um, and imposing authority within institutions is not something that we should um, uh, sort of have this knee-jerk, oh, that's ridiculous attitude towards. So anyway, I, I sh should go on about all of this stuff. But I actually have to return to one of my favorite advertisers, and that's, of course, fire. I should also say, you know, on this point about, like, um, enforced conformity, it is one of my great frustrations is this, this sort of Mott and Bailey argument that says when conformity is enforced, when the sort of mob cap campus culture is enforced, that's free speech. But when meaningful dissent against that mob um, mentality, that mob monopoly on discourse um, occurs, that's seen as um, provoking violence or being hurtful or spreading hate. Um, it is amazing how the language and psychological you know, uh, mechanisms of the enforced conformity on college campuses has adopted the language of free speech in a way that allows them to uh, minimize the actual free speech of meaningful academic freedom, meaningful dissent from uh, enforced conformity. And that's why I want to talk to you about FIRE.
Do you value free speech, individual rights, and academic freedom? Then I have something important to tell you. The Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, a.k.a. FIRE, is a staunchly nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that fights for your right to express your opinions without fear of censorship or retaliation. FIRE publishes a weekly newsletter called FIRE Update. Each update covers the latest developments in free speech and individual rights. It exposes censorship on campus and in communities, highlights free speech victories, and offers readers opportunities to participate in the conversation. By subscribing, you'll join a diverse community of individuals who are like-minded in their commitment to free expression. So what are you waiting for? Head to thefire.org slash update. That's thefire, T-H-E-F-I-R-E, dot org slash update or click the link in the episode description and subscribe to the fire update today your voice matters and with fire on your side you can help protect the rights that keep our society free all right so i don't know what i'm gonna write about today my whole schedule in new york got blown up um i had all sorts of things i needed to do but um and i don't know if i can I, I don't know. This is not your problem. You don't need to know about my itinerary. So uh, there was this tweet a couple of weeks ago now, or a week ago. I can't even remember. It was in response to uh, Ron DeSantis's statement about Ukraine, you know, that he gave in, as part of his answer to a questionnaire from, from Tucker Carlson. And Andrew Sullivan made the point that DeSantis's position is was considered something, I, I don't have the tweet in front of me, but the normie position, the, as in normal position under Obama just a few years ago, and now people are freaking out as if it's sort of radical and unacceptable. And I've been thinking about this a lot. I think Andrew's got a point. I also think Andrew misses a huge point here insofar as I didn't like Obama's foreign policy. I thought it was very bad. I said so at the time. And I don't see why I should change my view about, you know, quote unquote, foreign policy realism and multilateralism and leading from behind and, and all those other things simply because they have been imbibed by certain parts of the Republican Party. I thought Andrew, Andrew fell pretty hard for Obama um, after he broke his support for George W. Bush became a big defender of Barack Obama. And that was fine. Like, Andrew's a smart guy. He's allowed to defend a politician that he thinks is worth defending. He's certainly allowed to rebel against, um, as many, 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 many people did, his early support for the Iraq war, um, given how the Iraq war went. We should talk about that for a second. Um, so I'm not saying his position was illegitimate or anything like that. I just disagreed with it. You know, I had a lot of positions back then he disagreed with. I have a lot of positions now he probably disagrees with. Point I'm trying to make is that it kind of shows you how partisanship, not on Andrew's part, because his point was he was making a point about how, you know, the left was going crazy about stuff that they used to believe. And I think he's right about that. But it does sort of show you the, more broadly how sort of tribal partisanship makes it so difficult to hold a straight line on any of these things. DeSantis's statement, and we're going to get to the fact that DeSantis has since tried to clean it up, which I think vindicates my points um, in a lot of ways. But, you know, DeSantis's statement, it's just a territorial dispute. 
we have no interest in getting further in this. We don't want boots on the ground. You know, the whole thing. I was probably a little too harsh on it at the outset because I was letting the territorial dispute eclipse everything else. But as I think I said on the Dispatch podcast last week, um, I think the real takeaway from that DeSantis statement was that it was just a mistake. It was a mistake because he tried to be all things to all people. He tried to split the baby. Um, a bunch of people made this point that it was just a political statement trying to uh, keep all various constituencies, quote unquote, on side, as the Brits like to say. And therefore, it pleased almost nobody except the reflex defenders of, of Ron DeSantis. Um, I think it was a mistake for him to think he had to answer the question for Tucker Carlson. I think it's turning out that, this, that maybe the DeSantis's biggest analytical problem um, in understanding the lay of the land in politics is that he's just way too addicted to Twitter, is way too online, and is surrounded by people who care too much about Twitter, and is hiring people who care way too much about Twitter, um, and he's taking their advice. I think that has led him to sort of snuggle up to a lot of the Claremont types, which I think is a huge mistake for him. Just getting back to the sort of the, so like, you know, whenever it was that Andrew tweeted this thing, I made this point. It's like, well, what if I disliked Obama's foreign policy too? And I dislike it when it comes from Republican. And all these people, I mean, this is one of these really annoying things about the life I have chosen, but also it's accentuated on Twitter, is that I will often say, I don't like this or I don't like that. And somebody will say, well, you didn't say it when so-and-so did it. And a matter of fact is, I did say it when so-and-so did it. These people just didn't read it, don't remember it, or didn't look for it, or don't care. They're just trying to make this point that somehow I am the one who's being uh, opportunistic and partisan when it's actually their response that's opportunistic and, and partisan. And I got it from enough people because of that tweet thing that I went back and looked. I got a little cover stories for National Review about Barack Obama's, uh, you know, foreign policy um, and why I didn't like it. You know, I... I, I you know, from his, you know, campaign speech in Berlin, which was always freaking weird, man. Um, you know, he, he had this huge rally campaign speech in Berlin. Imagine if Donald Trump had campaigned in Berlin. Um, and, uh, you know, his whole thing about how walls are bad and borders are bad and separation is bad and we need to knock down these things. And it was all super, super globalist. But you know, globalist in the sort of multilateral institution kind of way. And um, and he had the same approach to foreign policy that he had domestic policy, which is that he thought he understood his opponent's interests better than they did. Um, he was a big devotee of, of, of the exact or one of the exact kinds of foreign policy realism that I've heaped scorn on for 20 years now and which I did quite often under the Obama presidency. Anyway, so like, you know, I went back and looked and I, and, 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 you know, the, the part, uh, again, I think that the, the problem with DeSantis' statement wasn't that he was actually laying out a robust isolationist, non-interventionist America first position. It's that he wanted to sound like he was to the non-interventionist and America first types while sounding like he wasn't to the, um, supporters of the Ukraine war, or supporters of aiding Ukraine and sort of the more um, hawkish people. And he ended up not doing neither. But, um, which gets me to this 
thing about how it was, you know, a mistake. He realized it was fake. He cleaned it up in this Piers Morgan interview and said, you know, it was misinterpreted, blah, 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 blah. Um, because the closer you looked at it, the more you realized he wasn't saying very much. I mean, you had to get really lawyerly and 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 analyze it in a sort of, okay, what is this actually, what binding power would this have over a, over a President DeSantis? And it's like literally none. Even the territorial dispute thing um, was arguably too clever by, you know, arguably was an attempt to um, describe a hypothetical rather than the reality. I mean, that's being a little generous, I think, to DeSantis. Um, but, uh, you know, it turns out that he had to clean it up. And I think that that, that gets to my point that it was a mistake in the first place because he misread what the reaction was going to be to it. I think the 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 er mistake, the the primary mistake, the first mistake was thinking that he had to dance to friggin' Tucker Carlson's tune. He could have ignored Tucker Carlson's questionnaire. I mean, it may be that they have such a personal relationship that you know Tucker called him and said you got to do this, and he didn't he didn't think it was worth kind of like blowing up the you know, the future free airtime he might get. Um, but, uh, you know, taking it, I mean, like, <laughs> Tucker's had advice for me that I rejected because I knew it wasn't actually in my interest. The idea that, like, uh, um, Tucker's primary interest is is in doing what's right for the GOP or right for um, Ron DeSantis is something I think the DeSantis team is going to have to get over and eventually it's going to learn. You know, there are some people who are just not going to be uh, the kinds of team players that you think they're going to be. Yes. Yeah, so anyway, I think that the the kind of you know look, people misuse, and again, this is something I've been writing about for twenty years. People misuse isolationism all the time. Isolation is one of these scare words that is never the th it, again. It's like the censorship thing or the cancel culture thing, right? Like, like we all agree that having blackface minstrel show on campus is something a president of a university should cancel, but we're not going to call that cancel culture. Um, we all believe that uh, grotesque, hardcore pornography on TV should be censored, but we're just not going to call that censorship. Isolationism is almost never something that people use to describe themselves. It's almost always something people use to describe people they don't like. In that sense, it's the opposite of realism where everybody calls themselves a realist and says these it's the other people who aren't realists. But isolationism, look, I'm not a fan of Rand Paul. Um, I'm really not a fan of his dad. And, and those guys come closer to sort of traditional American isolationism than many, but they're still free traders. Um, and I remember Ron Paul in one of the debates talking about how he was against a border wall because the problem with border walls is that they... Um, can be built to keep people out, but pretty soon they're meant to keep people in. Dum, 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 right? There are aspects of, of internationalism to almost everybody who ever gets called a isolationist. And there are elements of isolationism to everybody who gets called uh, internationalist. Again, this is, it's, it's like the paranoid style in American politics. It's always decried as a right-wing phenomenon when it is actually an American phenomenon. It's actually a universal human phenomenon where there's lots of paranoid style on the left. Similarly, there's, lot, there's a long history of isolationism on the left. McGovern ran for president 
on the slogan in part, come home America. What's his face? Uh, was it William Fulbright, who was Bill Clinton's mentor um, for a while, was a sort of crazy moral equivalence with the Soviet Union jackass on on foreign policy stuff and very much an isolationist in many meaningful ways. FDR, you know, who is seen as the ultimate enemy of, of isolationists, you know, until World War II was much more isolationist than I would like. You know, he's the one who pulled out of the world economic crisis in 36, was one of his key decisions that lengthened the Great Depression because he wanted America to go its own way on, on economic recovery. Uh, it was econo- economically speaking, it was one of the most isolationist things in American history. When I was growing up politically in the 1990s, uh, it was, you know, it was uh, Dick Gephardt and the Democrats who were the um, protectionists. And um, it was the Republicans like Phil Graham who were the free traders. And so anyway, I, I think the isolationism thing gets wildly overused and misused. But non-interventionism is much more of a thing, right? Dovishness is much, I mean, no one likes to call themselves a dove, but, you know, it's a, but I think it's a fairer term because at least it is, it's graded on the curve of the existing con- context, right? We know what the situation is right now, that the person, the, the group or faction that is most opposed to any military intervention is going to be the dove camp in the same way that the the group most in favor of intervention is going to be the hawk camp. Now, what defines hawkishness or what defines dovishness will change given the context, but I think it's a fine word or fine adjective to use, at least conversationally for things. But, um, you know, interventionism, non-interventionism, internationalism, these are better terms. Um, you know, protectionist is a perfectly fine term to use, I think. Um, although, again, Lots of people, you know, just don't, will not own the labels that, um, uh, no one will own the labels that unfairly apply to them. Um, uh, very few, but a lot of people won't even own the labels that fairly apply to them. And so anyway, I, I think that the, um, the strain in Republican politics these days of non-interventionism of, you know, I saw the other night. Um, I don't watch it, but I saw a clip Tucker mocking people as um, sort of a sheep, you know, who say that Putin's a war criminal. Putin's a war criminal. I mean, that's just freaking obvious. Um, and it's 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 I don't really think it's a debatable proposition at this point. It's both uh, objectively true and normative true and, and legally true at this point. But the attitude towards foreign policy these days on the right, I think if you were a visitor from Mars or if you've been asleep for 10 years, this just gets me back to Andrew's point, you'd say, wow, the you know, big chunk of the Republican Party has basically adopted not so much foreign po- Obama's foreign policy because Obama loved the UN and loved multilateral institutions and all that kind of stuff. Um, he just wanted to lead from behind. He wanted those institutions as part of, you know, the global order kind of thing. And I don't mean in a conspiratorial sense. He wanted, you know, other institutions and our allies to take more of the heat um, and more of the responsibility off of our plate. That's not quite the foreign policy non-interventionism that that is on the right. Um, It's much more of a Fortress America kind of approach. But this sort of just sort of 
general animosity towards the idea that America has an interest in um, being the leader of the free world, of maintaining the global order, of maintaining our alliances, of, of asserting its principles on a global stage. It seems to me that like this, I, so I know I'm struggling with this and I apologize for people who've just stopped jogging and started yelling, spit it out, Jonah. Um, but, I, you know, part of the thing about these weird podcasts I do is I think out loud and sometimes I need to take a second and think. I think one of the things that Donald Trump has done to the GOP is he has made the um, the decline in civilizational confidence bipartisan. A lot of Democratic foreign policy going back to the Vietnam era really rests, if not even earlier in the Cold War, rests on this sort of fundamentally screwed up lack of self-confidence that says, you know, who are we to tell other countries how to live? Who are we to say we're the leader of the free world? Who are we to say that, you know, what's right and wrong? Sort of like the argument the guy was making about college presidents. Um, there's that argument on the left, you know, going, you know, the the sort of San Francisco Democrat speech that Gene Kirkpatrick gave, the blame America first crowd, there's an aspect of that that has now become utterly bipartisan. And this sort of gets into, I, I, on Wednesday, I did a, I responded to Stephen Miller, um, who uh, took offense at my criticisms of, of Donald Trump's idiotic speech last week, where he was talking about how the greatest threat to Western civilization are the godless Marxists and globalists in America who want to destroy America and prevent me from becoming president, yada, yada, yada. Admittedly, it comes from a different psychological place. But, you know, Trump's view of America is America, uh, it's amazing how America can be this great and glorious place when he is president. But the second someone other than him runs it, it is a laughing stock. It is pathetic. It is the joke. Um, it's a disaster. You know, America was great, was a great and good country when Barack Obama was president. I think he didn't do as much as some people claim he did to make it a better country. And in some ways, I think he made it a worse country, but it was still a great country, still a good country. We're a good people. Um, and we have got a heritage and a tradition and ideals and principles that we should not be ashamed of. We should actually proselytize as best we can within reason and all the rest. But for Trump, America is only great when he's at the helm and when it sticks up for its principles it's being a sucker. And, uh, and our leader, this is a point you've all made years ago that Trump's critique of the U.S., of the United States and of the U.S. government is different than prior conservative critiques. Prior conservative critiques were that elites, um, that progressive elites, that the government was too powerful um, and was too clever in its social engineering and bossing us around and all that kind of stuff. And Trump's critique was that it was stupid and weak and they needed to be stronger and tougher and smarter as just like him, obviously. But um, that's not the, you know, that's not the conservative, traditional conservative complaint about government is that, oh, it's, it's really dumb and really weak. It's that it's, um, I mean, you can say that some of the policies were dumb and we certainly did a lot of that, but it was that, you know, it's run by very clever people who are trying to manipulate us and try to nudge us and cajole us and socially engineer us, um, and that it's too strong. 
And that was not Trump's critique. And Trump's critique, you know, to this day is America without me in charge is a joke and pathetic and horrible. And um, that too, and this sounds very much like Kevin Williamson stuff, that too is a sort of uh, right-wing version of the progressive idolatry of government and particularly of the presidency. You know, it is a vision that says the presidency is really like a monarchy. And if you have a good king, the country is healthy and happy. And if you have a bad king, the country isn't. That point of view basically is something that conservatives for decades criticized, this idea that the president is the captain of the ship and runs the country and creates jobs with a job creation machine in the basement. Trump shares that progressive point of view. He adorns it with all sorts of right-wing batshittery, but um, it's the same basic approach to the role of government. And um, how do they get on this? Oh, so anyway, like if you, um, my problem with the, with the Trump speech last week, which I think obviously Steve Miller wrote, which is why he got his panties in a bunch about it, is that it's, I mean, you can go back and read it. If you were a subscriber, you can go back and read it. Um, I got a lot of nice reaction to it. It works from the assumption, like so much of this Trump stuff does, that because Trump says these words um, about a, being America, making America great, and patriotism, and the Constitution, and the Bible, and all these kinds of things, first of all, it it first of all assumes that he means any of it, you know. And the idea that Trump believes any of the stuff he says about Christianity or religion or God or the Bible, I mean, at what point? Do you just sort of like have to have a crisis of conscience about your ability to be conned if you still believe any of that stuff? Um, it's just so laughably pathetic and stupid, the idea that like he's a serious Christian. Hell, I mean, there are people out there who are saying he's like Jesus, which is just, uh, you know, Japanese game show crazy. But Let's just say for the benefit of the doubt and be charitable that he does believe all of this stuff. What evidence is there that he is actually a, a, a person suited to doing anything about the problems that he identifies? What evidence is there that he actually won't make a lot of the problems that he's pointing to worse? Anyway, I, there, there's a deep and passionate anti-Americanism to Trump's pro-America stuff. Um, and to the rights pro-America stuff because it, first of all, assumes that, uh, that the United States of America is first and last um, an expression of the partisan priorities of the partisan policy priorities of a specific uh, political party at a given moment of time. And I'm sorry for all the alliteration there. Um, you know, if the Republicans are in power, America is a good country. If the Republicans aren't in power, America is a bad country. Is not an argument to say that we're a good country. It is a banana republic argument. There's a deeply, deeply, deeply unpatriotic thing going on when you say that our biggest enemies, the biggest threat to America are other Americans. Now, I think, as I wrote about, you know, there's a superficially plausible defense of some of that insofar as I've talked and written a lot about how ingratitude is bad um, and is suicidal for Western civilization, for the United States of America, that uh, 
uh, anti-Americanism is incredibly dangerous and misguided and wrong and could lead to the dissolution of a lot of the things that I hold dear. I, I agree with all of that. But the answer to that is not to say that um, our existential enemies are other Americans. It is not to say that America should be a country at war, not with some evil foreign power, but with other Americans. That is not the way out of any of this. And I, and, and, you know, and when, what drove me crazy about the Trump speech was that he was trying to make the argument that supporting Ukraine, again, we're not talking about sending troops, right? We're not talking about American boots on the ground. We're talking about sending some tanks um, and some bullets and some guns. Uh, you know, one of the things I criticized the Obama foreign policy for was that, you know, uh, there was this great line in the Wall Street Journal it was 10, 15 years ago, or 12 years ago now, 10 years ago, uh, about how when I was talking to some American general, I think, about how if Russia complies with our demands, we won't supply the Ukraine's. Um, with more provisions, but if Russia violates our terms, then we are going to release the socks because we were sending socks to the Ukrainians, not weapons. Um, and uh, but anyway, so Trump Trump's position, and to the extent that DeSantis was trying to mimic it or sound like he was mimicking it, DeSantis's position in that statement was that we should consider that. Because Russia isn't the greatest threat to Western civilization, we shouldn't consider it a threat to civilization at all. Now, I'm not the one who brought up Western civilization in this context. It was Trump who did. But, like, I thought he was America first guy, not a civilization first guy. And, um, and the question, you know, that the American first guys always say, you know, the smart ones at least say, is, you know, it's about putting our interests first. And so the question, you know, the, the whole framing, the way Trump does this is not to say we, um, uh, is to, when it comes to Russia, he just puts the question of interests completely aside. Um, and, you know, it's a perfectly rational thing to say, okay, you know, to ask, is it in our interest to help Ukraine? And I, for the, for the life of me, do not see the arguments about what, I, I shouldn't say that. I do see some of the arguments of why it isn't in the interests of um, the United States to help Ukraine. I just don't see enough of them to outweigh all of the arguments in favor of sending some more tanks and guns and bullets to help the Ukrainians beat back the Russians. And to say that Russia isn't the greatest threat to American to Western civilization is fine because it happens to be true. Um, but that doesn't mean it isn't a threat to Western civilization. China isn't the greatest threat to Western civilization either, but there are very few Trumpy conservatives who don't want to, like, be more confrontational with China. Well, why? If, if, if it's a binary thing that if you're not the greatest threat to, American, to Western civilization, you're not a threat um, at all, then why should we care about China at all? Because according to Trump, the, the greatest threat are, you know, all of these jackwads who wear, you know, who put, put signs in their front yards that say, in this house, we believe science is real or whatever. That those are the real threats to the only threat to Western civilization. And the only way to defeat those people is to elect Donald Trump because he is our retribution, remember? And so anyway, I think that the, 
the way that Trump talks about and Trumpists talk about America um, isn't a pro-America approach. I mean, and I mean that in the broadest sense possible. It is, I mean, I don't mean that it's just not good for America. I mean, it doesn't think much of America. And I want to be really consistent on this. I want to be clear about this. I'm really consistent on this point. I got in a lot of, got a lot of heat. I don't know, what was it? Gosh, 17 years ago. Whenever Dinesh came out with that book, The Enemy at Home, this was back when I still had much warmer feelings towards Dinesh, but I didn't like the book. Almost nobody liked the book because at, the, at its core, it was a very bad argument. But anyway, the Claremont Review of Books, which I also used to have a much warmer feeling towards back then, asked me to review it, and I did. And the argument I made was that, so I should say, Dinesh's argument was that um, the American right should find common cause um, with the Islamist, quote-unquote, right, with Islamist conservatives around the world because we both both sides share an appreciation for uh, traditional values, traditional, you know, marriage, all this, all this kind of stuff, and our real enemies are people like, I don't know, Britney Spears or something, um, and the cultural left. And... Um, I remember writing, I was like, look, you know, when it comes to this kind of thing, I'm pretty Irish. Uh, and you can go find the review. I mean, I haven't looked at it in 15 years, so I'm truly just paraphrasing. But I remember writing something along the lines of, you know, look, when it comes to this kind of stuff, you know, it brings out the Irish in me insofar as I'm allowed to criticize my uncle. I'm allowed to criticize, you know, in this case, Ted Kennedy. But... um if you want to kill Ted Kennedy, you got to go through me, figurative speaking, obviously. And what I mean by that is, is like, um, as bad as I think our domestic opponents are um, in the in the political realm, uh, they're still my tribe. They're still my fellow countrymen. They're still Americans. And I'll be damned if I'm going to, like, be part of a international movement that um, says that I have more... Um, I should have more loyalty to and affinity for um, uh, people who hate this country, hate its regime, hate its constitution, hate its values, hate its history, um, because they like traditional marriage um, and uh, and are purportedly, you know, religiously conservative. Uh, that's just not how it's going to work for me, at least, and I don't think it's the way it's going to work. For a lot of people, and he, you know, he found common cause with some truly terrible um, Islamist radicals because they agreed with um, his critiques of of America's cultural left, and um, I'm just a hard pass on that kind of thinking. And it's funny; it hadn't occurred to me until just now, but like. It's kind of interesting how, you know, uh, Dinesh was premature in his argument because we're now seeing some of that kind of thinking come out of, um, you know, uh, certainly, you know, people like Saurabh um, and Rod Dreher and others who like have this newfound sympathy for, um, you know, from the excerpts I've seen of stuff that they've written for, of, um, you know, Islamist types rejecting Western cultural hegemony and all of that. Um it's actually not a bad piece for someone to do. I got to think about that. Um, 
you know, and the 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 sort of uh, you know, let's look to Hungary um, as a or or for that matter, on some in some parts, let's look to Putin um, as ideological comrades in our struggle with our domestic opponents is very much a, a, a what Dinesh was arguing 15 years ago. And um, I just utterly reject it. And, um, and I think it is a, is a sort of a fundamentally anti-American, un-American way of thinking about things because it seems to think that we have more in common with uh, a traditionalist in Hungary um, who wants to conserve... A very different set of institutions and concepts than we do with fellow Americans. And it is a a tendency that I've criticized for years about people on the left who want to, you know, I've been written, I've been accused of anti-Semitism for saying that, you know, the project of the American left for 100 years has been to Europeanize American politics. Um, and I can give you chapter and verse on why I think that's absolutely and sort of irrefutably true. Um, but I, I dislike it on the right, too. Um, and if you think that, like, the warp and woof and richness of American culture um, can be erased because you have a D after your name or you have an R after your name. Um, or because you pulled the lever in one, ele- in one of our countless elections for somebody that you don't like, then you really don't think much of American culture and a much, a much, much of the American history, history or American, American heritage or American character. I love this country. I love this country when Democrats are in charge. Um, I love this country when Donald Trump was in charge. I haven't really, you know, been psyched about who's running, you know, the federal government in a really long time. It hasn't made me love this country less. And I think that people sort of lose sight of this as they make politics much, much more important than it should be. Anyway, I know I've gone really long. I can't count how many times I've said to myself, my God, I never really got to the point, did I? So I apologize. I got to I got to write a G file and figure out, you know, how I'm going to escape from New York. Um, but thanks for listening. Thanks again to Fire. Um, for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. And you should go to www.thefire.org slash update. I don't even know if you have to put the www in there. I just felt like saying it. But go to thefire.org slash update um, and tell them I sent you. And uh, I'll talk to you next time. <laughs>